I'm Kevin Price. This is The Price of Business. Kurt Norquist is continuing his ongoing series of the Digital Matrix, his interviews with some of the most important people in technology. We love this series. We're glad that it's a part of USA Business Radio. Hello, and welcome to today's show. You are listening to The Digital Matrix, where Kurt talks to some of the brightest minds in the industry about the most advanced technology IT solutions available today to help your business thrive. Today's episode is brought to you by General Data Tech at www.gdt.com. You can also email the show at podcast at gdt.com. And now, to start the show from his secret podcast studio in City Center in Houston, Texas, here's your host, Kurt Nordquist. Thanks for joining us on the show today. You have found the Digital Matrix Season 2. I'm your host, Kurt Nordquist, Executive Director of Global Alliances at GDT. Glad to have you back with us, where I get to talk to some of the smartest and coolest people on the planet in the technology industry. Today is September the 14th. Like I always do on the show, let's look at what happened around this date in tech history. Now, nothing that you haven't already learned, but a software bug is an error, flaw, or a fault in the design, development, or operation of computer software that causes it to produce an incorrect or unexpected result, or maybe it behaves in unintended ways. Now, to find them or correct bugs, that's termed debugging. Do you know where that term debug originated? Well, in 1945, operators of the Harvard Mark II found a moth, of all things, trapped in relay number 70 in panel F. The bug was saved and now taped to their troubleshooting log in the museum where it was written, and I quote, first actual case of a bug being found. Now, this was not the first use of the term bug for computer problems, but this was the first time that the term debug was used. 1956, the IBM 350 disk storage unit, Model 1, was announced which was the first commercial storage unit to use magnetic disk storage, the technology behind what today are our hard disk drives, about the size of two refrigerators and weighing in at a ton. The 350 could store about, listen to this, four to five megabytes, depending upon how it was calculated. Imagine what you were carrying in your pocket in your phone. The 350 would be an integral part of the IBM Ramac 305 computer, which would then be introduced nine days later on September the 13th. The Ramac 305 and 350 disk storage unit was designed to replace the punch card tub file system that was the primary read means of storing repeatedly accessed data. And in 1980, and staying with IBM, the last IBM 7030 stretch mainframe in active use is decommissioned at Brigham Young University. The first stretch was delivered to Los Alamos National Laboratory in 1961, given the model almost 20 years of operational service. The stretch was famous for many things, but perhaps most notably, it was the first IBM computer to use transistors instead of vacuum tubes. It was the first computer to be designed with the help of an earlier computer, and it was the world's fastest computer from 1961 to 1964. 
And that's today's look back in tech history. Efficient IP is a network security and automation company specializing in DNS, DHCP, IPAM, all known as DDI. They promote business continuity by making your IP infrastructure foundation reliable, agile, and secure. Since 2004, EIP has continued to expand their reach internationally, providing solutions, professional services, and support all over the world with the help of select business partners. Their passionate teams have delivered successful projects to over a 1,000 customers globally and ensured that operational efficiency through dedicated customer care. Now, today's guest on the Digital Matrix is Jason Walsh. He is a senior solutions architect at Efficient IP and has worked with organizations to help secure networks and namespace for well over a decade. Prior to joining Efficient IP, Jason has led the network team supporting IPAM at a 400-bed hospital associated in New England. Jason, great having you here on the show today. It's great to be here, Kurt. Thank you for having me. And you're out of Boston, is that right? Yes. Uh, yeah, I was born and raised in Connecticut, lived in New England all my life, and um, married with uh, two young kids. Uh, when I have enough time, uh, just try to get into uh, the outdoors and experience nature. But other than that, uh, enjoy network engineering. Well, Jason, we have all heard the term digital transformation. It's been tossed around quite a lot over the last few years. Now, there's all this data, and not all members of the organization are operating off of the same data. What is a single source of truth, and why is it foundational to digital transformation? If we're going to talk about a single source of truth, I think it might be helpful if we take a moment and, and back up and, and look at where we came from in the sense of managing the core network metrics, uh, performance, devices, and resource records, 10, 15 years ago, we were all talking about, uh, and Gartner coined the term IP address management. Everyone was getting into some sort of organized structure to keep track of the IP space that they're utilizing, but also to act as a roadmap uh, to continue to build out their IP schema efficiently. And that, of course, married along with the core network services like DNS and DHCP. They share a lot of the commonalities with IP address management, and they can certainly provide data to enrich your IPAM database. And then we got into things like virtual desktop infrastructure, VMs, and now we hear with a public cloud. And so networks are discontiguous and we're growing organically in many directions. And so IPAM is evolving to be more than a tool to make efficient use of your IP schema. It really is becoming the network's single source of truth. And as you mentioned, Kurt, there's different silos of, of data in different areas of the environment, and there needs to be consistency in what is assigning resources for the environment, especially when we're getting into the new realm of automation. So, you know, we consider the number of human touch points the manual provisioning that's occurring every day, IP reservations, subnet delegations, DHCP, cloud workloads. It's too much to manage, and we need a system that's going to be able to normalize and share data with the other tools in the organization and also be able to present the most relevant important data, whether that be uh, client behavior or security-related information, uh, that sort of thing needs to be floated up at the top. So a single source of truth is that one-stop shop 
or when you're building your environment, you're going to be assigning resources like perhaps an IP space, but it's also going to be your authoritative source for actionable data to share throughout the ecosystem. When IPs and namespaces and other data points are ingested by your source of truth, you get back an accurate current view as well as a historical look back of the entire state of your organization. But it's not just good for housekeeping and efficiency. A single source of truth enriches the greater ecosystem, but it also combines your authoritative IPAM data with organizational specific metadata. And this is why I refer to DDI as, as the hub of automation and why it's evolving to become the single source of truth. So the solutions that we talked about, Jason, we talked about IPAM, DNS, DHCP. Do they make for a good single source of truth? You know, part of its position at the center of the network, I think, affords DNS and DHCP a lot of authoritative knowledge about the clients that are operating within the environment and also the behavior of those clients. So it's your network model. When you combine DNS, your namespace, DHCP with your dynamic allocation of IP addresses, along with your overarching IP schema, it's your network model. I mean, it, it's the definition of what is and where, where it is. And when we're maintaining this inventory, uh, other, it doesn't matter if it's an administrator that's making changes on the system or if we have, let's say, an API request that's coming in from an orchestrator that says, hey, I need to spin up a dozen workloads in the cloud. Can I have the next 12 addresses in this scope? It's always reconciling this information with what you have in your IP address management database versus uh, what's out in, in reality and what's built. So it's the correlation of the data along with behavioral capturing, because DNS can give us a lot of information about what clients are up to. So we've got really a, a two-pronged approach. It's the authoritative information that's in the IPM database, but we're also matching that with the behavior of the client by logging really a 360-degree view around that client contextually and what they're up to. So that it enables the source of truth, but also security when we're talking about you know, digital transformation projects. So let's dive in a little bit more on the security side. Okay, we know CISOs, they have, they have a lot to protect internally. And we do understand that DNS is a common target for these bad actors. How can we do better in securing this service? And does single source of truth help mitigate this risk? Uh, DNS was designed as an open, connectionless service. Uh, it should be with no surprise, it's an attractive attack, attack vector. Bad actors target DNS for, for two simple reasons. One, it's insecure, and two, they can safely assume that you're dependent on it. So securing DNS it means ensuring continuous availability of the service, but also safeguarding your assets and protecting your data. So this requires intelligence, uh, but also adaptive responses to things like denial of service and volumetric attacks. And to secure clients, that requires a combination of signature and behavior-based detection. It's when we use these two together and in the right places that we can secure DNS and provide deep visibility protection and control. 
So what are the right places then to position security within the network? I'm thinking pretty close to the client. Could you also expand on identity-based control? You're you're 100% right. The closer you are to the client, the better visibility that you have. It's it's the bouncer at the door paradigm. We call it guardian. Guardian meets anomalous behavior with complete transaction inspection. It's one hop out. And because we communicate directly with the client while servicing its request, DNS has that complete view into both how the client is interacting with the service, but also the metrics associated with the request. So if that client's talking to DNS and having DNS go out to the internet and trying to maybe do a slow drip NX domain attack where you can slowly consume the resources of a DNS server by having it go and make fool errands out on the internet, that we're going to actually hold the client accountable. And so we're grading every client as it's interacting with DNS, uh, and we're able to uh, adapt and respond to that as necessary. So this is a high-speed cache and inspection module, and, and the Guardian module sits in front of the Resolver engine. What it does here is you know, it allows you to make complex matches between the client that makes the request, what is requested, to perform advanced filtering. And so that is an opportunity to not only visualize but manipulate that traffic. So with a policy on your guardians, you know, you're identifying specific clients. And so now we're getting into identity management here because now we're making a choice and either permitting or denying this identified subset of your endpoints to, let's say, only resolve applications in the finance subzone. So now here, you're transitioning your DNS from an open free-for-all to a need-to-know basis. It's a way to not only provide that deep visibility, uh, but reduce a potential of threat vectors into your applications. And if we see potentially nefarious client behavior, and we'll use that example of the NX domain, kind of the long recursion, where there's a, a, you know, a number of slow drip attacks that can surreptitiously eat away at a resolver engine's resources, causing a, a denial of service. And that's in a continuous monitoring. And so Guardian sitting out in front of the resolver engine is always looking over its shoulder, monitoring that resolver engine's performance. Guardian is able to adjust its traffic in response to how that resolver is performing. And if needed, strong dynamic countermeasures are deployed to ensure service continuity. So we've talked about misbehaving clients. We've talked about access control. What about DDoS and other volumetric types of attacks? On the rise, they are. Uh, Denial of service type attacks, they intend to make the service unavailable for legitimate users. Traditional resource rate limiting Base protections for the DNS service are markedly insufficient in today's threat landscape. Guardian is able to absorb large-scale denial-of-service attacks because it has the advantage of being able to switch modes to uh, essentially protect that last line of defense, which is your resolver engine behind it. So on ingress traffic, Guardian will check to see how much it has to handle, how fast the recursion engine is performing, how it's working, and if things go really wrong, 
uh, we're able to selectively restrict that client. We'll turn recursion off just for that one endpoint while permitting its access to our valid entries in our cache. If things go really bad, uh, we can always block uh, recursion completely and just serving up a high-speed cache to those clients. All right. So, Jason, you and I chatted a little bit before this episode, and you had said that a data-driven security strategy starts with DDI. Can you elaborate on this for our listeners? Yeah. You know, DNS is a trove of forensic data. You know, here's, here's the rough. All the endpoints that we need to secure, they communicate with DNS. But many organizations, they struggle with capturing all of that data. So regardless of the security framework that you're operating in, DNS resolvers that are logging requests and round-trip times and other metrics, well, they're all providing valuable insight into client behavior. And within the IPM database, you know, data points like the authenticated Active Directory user, you know, this is correlated along with the consumption of those DNS queries, which leads right back to the device itself, IP address, MAC address, DHCP lease, if, if that's in play, whatever it is, you'll have that correlation along with that historical look back. And one more point on, on the security framework. Now, identity is critical to how we secure clients as part of an overall security strategy. And that's the single source of truth uh, feather in the cap because the ability to merge that authoritative data with organizational specific metadata it empowers the rest of the security tools and makes them makes them more effective. So earlier today, I had mentioned how the term digital transformation has been tossed around quite a bit. Well, more and more organizations are moving to one or multiple cloud providers, right? So everybody's talking about cloud. Does the single source of truth extend to cover these platforms? Yes. Yes, you, you can have centralized IP address management, centralized DNS, namespace administration that incorporates the whole of your organization's public and private zones wherever they may be. DNS, right, we know it can enrich the security ecosystem. We know it can normalize the shared data through the single source of truth. But when we're getting into public cloud, now there's a separate console or, or maybe there's a separate team and whether that be workloads running in public cloud and performing an inventory of what's out there or uh, reclamating DNS entries in a, in a local private zone and making those entries available so folks can resolve these cloud workloads. So it's the connective tissue the single source of truth can provide to make these networks and namespaces more accessible, but also, yes, to consolidate that management of the IP inventory along with the namespaces in a central place. Now, I, I have a pet peeve, and, and that is the, the unnecessary fragmentation of namespace administration. If we have DNS, there's incredible value there, not only for client control, but client visibility. And I think we, we disadvantage ourselves if we have to rely on multiple DNS solutions, multiple DNS providers, because now we're complicating the automation of that service, and we're complicating the consumption of locks. So from what you're saying, SSOT or single source of truth gives you the visibility into the structure and the endpoints that make up your network. 
So how does Single Source of Truth process this information to enrich ecosystem tools? Yeah, you know, as I mentioned, the Source of Truth is, is always reconciling what both the DNS and DHCP protocols uh, are, are working with, but also all of these specific data points that is important to the organization. And I tossed that around, that organizational specific metadata. You know, that really is anything that's, that's impertinent to uh, the organization in question. So it could be physical locations, maybe the names of different data centers, teams, um, hot aisle, uh, cold aisle, or whatever, whatever the layout is, uh, those can translate into specific data points that live within your single source of truth. And those can be leveraged then in the path to ecosystem enrichment. So if there is a misbehaving client, uh, we're triggering off of that. We're seeing the beginnings of a data exfiltration attempt. Well, not only are we going to take that information and alert a security tool, but we're going to combine that security event with other organizational data points that we already know of. So we've identified the client. We perhaps know the Active Directory user that is currently authenticated. We've captured the, the Kerberos uh, ticket assignment. And so we have that information. We've tied it back to the HCP lease. And perhaps that category appliance is uh, part of a certain team or part of a certain department or even a physical location at a regional hub. And we can take those data points as well and include those over to the security tool so that the security tool can make the, the most intelligent uh, decision possible. So it's the um, repository that combines all of that is, is very effective. A lot of our customers uh, use that in many different ways. And these, these are also used in really a restful API capacity as well, because um, unlike some tools, all of the custom metadata fields that are created within our system are queryable over our, our API. And so there's no limitation that it truly can be leveraged uh, by really any other system um, that communicates on API as well. Furthermore, another point I'd love to make is that a single source of truth can, does, and should make use of inheritance. And so if you have, let's say, in your IP schema, a large block of IP space that you're going to be incrementally carving up smaller subnets, and they're going to be perhaps pre-allocated for a use uh, by a specific team or a specific tool that's going to be coming over and authenticating via the API. And so that is great because you can set other triggers that, again, leverage your organizational specific data. So just as an example, we send information to Tufin, which is the firewall management domain based kind of the, the security compliance. So in that aforementioned example where you have a large IP block, anytime a smaller subnet is carved out and assigned, there's metadata inherited into that subnet that says, hey, let Tufin know so that it can turn around and dynamically apply the appropriate uh, security policy or put that network in the right security zone, for instance. So hopefully the Tufin example gives you some food for thought because there are a number of cases where you can take information uh, that's in the IPAM database that's not really in the traditional scope of IPAM, uh, but and empower that data uh, to help feed uh, third-party tools. So, Jason, we've covered security, we've covered automation, API. Can you give us a brief overview of the efficient IP solid server solution and how it is deployed? Yes, yes. The solid server solution 
installs on hardware, a virtual machine, or the cloud, uh, we're not a software as a service, something that your organization will run. And uh, the first solid server instance takes on the role of management. That runs the web UI and API services. When DNS and DHCP services are introduced into the environment, they're onboarded to the management instance, and we consolidate the view across all networks and namespace. And it is a very scalable solution. We lead the industry, Guardian, and its performance tops out at about 17 million DNS queries per second. We're talking a single Guardian appliance. Folding uh, multiple Guardians into an Anycast group scales quickly and adds the benefits of cache synchronization. You know, they, they will unicast each other and, and compare cache, helping out each other and improving performance by the synchronization of valid cache entries, uh, which is an interesting angle because we've been talking about Guardians sitting out in front of the resolver engine, adding that protection, uh, but actual multiple guardians in that frontline DNS service layer participating in an Anycast group, uh, they can actually uh, support each other uh, in that process as well. Well, finally, Jason, we're coming towards the end of the show. What are you seeing with your customers' digital transformation projects? Are you seeing trends? Are more organizations moving towards automation? Now, automation, it's an exciting road ahead. I think we're still in an adolescent state. Automation is not brand new. It's not a super exciting network technology like network observability or SASE. Uh, but at the same time, it's not really as mature uh, from an adoption you know, standpoint like uh, IPv6 you know, or SD-WAN. A lot of people know about it, and a lot of people are doing it a little bit. So with that said, it's exciting to see the organizations I work with taking the first steps to reduce manual operations. In early 22, Gartner released a result of a survey on automation. They're saying that about 30% of all organizations, uh, that about 30% of network activities are automated. And I, I, you know, I hear that, and I hear, well, 70% are manual. I hear we have a long way to go, but we've taken the first steps. Um, you know, Gartner also found that a small number of folks, under 10%, they're automating over half of their network activities. You know, and what's fascinating there is it's not a, a Google or an Amazon or a Facebook. You know, they're, 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 they're just enterprises. They're not internet service providers. So there's, there's some folks out there that are really taking automation in stride, and they've really made a lot of gains reducing uh, human uh, touch points. It's starting to go mainstream, isn't it? Oh, it is. It is, you know. And, um, you know, if I've got some advice, uh, you know, to share with the audience, you know, that want to, that want to get started with this. You know, of course, we've had this very foundational uh, concept in our, in our conversation today, revolving around that source of truth. And uh, beyond that, you know, beyond your foundation, I think starting small, taking small steps, iterating, uh, maybe even if we're talking about getting your feet wet, feet wet with uh, automation, start with something non-production. And don't jump in with automating, you know, half of, of your, of your um, you know, cloud server provisioning overnight. You know, it, it's exciting to see the organizations I work with taking steps to reduce manual operations. In early 22, Gartner released the results of a survey on automation. Right now, about 30% of network activities are automated. You know, I heard that, and I see uh, 70% are manual. So we've taken a step, but we've got 
a ways to go. Gartner also found that a small number of folks, uh, like less than 10%, they're automating over half of their network activities. And that's fascinating because this isn't like uh, internet service providers or Google or Amazon. You know, these are just enterprises. So, so wow, uh, some folks are, are really uh, pushing the envelope. Jason, all of this fantastic stuff. Where can our listeners go to get more information on Efficient IP's great solutions that we spoke about today? Yeah, uh, www.efficientip.com. Uh, that's, the, that's the main website. We've got all the links on there, whether you're looking to get some more information, maybe a white paper, or you can check out our blog. And you can request uh, we contact you right through that website. There's also a number on there, and we can meet up with the team and review the situation. Thank you, Jason. Hey, it was great having you on the show today. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Kurt, a pleasure. Thank you for having me. For more information on Efficient IP solutions around DNS, DHCP, and IPAM and other security solutions, visit their website at EfficientIP.com. If you would like to see a demo or put together a proof of concept, you can visit us at GDT.com. We'll bring our technical experts to the table to walk you through it. You can even reach me at the show by email at podcast at GDT.com. For Jason Walsh, I'm Kurt Nordquist, and this is The Digital Matrix. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The Digital Matrix with Kurt Nordquist. For more information on the technologies discussed on today's show, you can email Kurt at podcast at GDT.com. Please be sure to follow us at The Digital Matrix for more cool tech content on future podcasts. 